I'm your host, Nancy Trader. Welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast, where we'll help you dig out of whatever hole you're in. Here, you can connect with experts to listen and learn from their experience and get advice for your challenges in business, wellness organizations, and relationships. Here, you can borrow from others and find what you need to create the life and work you want. Hi, and welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Trader, along with my sidekick. Hey, I'm Susan. Today, we are back with another really great topic. We're going to be talking about organizational management and leadership and all of the challenges that we face when we go to work every day. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, this is something that I'm really passionate about. You know, this is going to be airing in July. So if your organization is on a school calendar, you're closing out four quarters. And now is the perfect time for you to start fresh. And if you're on a calendar year, you got two more quarters to get your act together. And we have a great person here to talk us through that. But I wanted to put it into larger context first. So I pulled out some information, and there's tons of information out there, including statistics on what a healthy organization is. But I went to the Academy to Innovate HR and found a great article by Shani J, who basically lays out the criteria that they use in organizations to benchmark and measure what a healthy organization is. Now, there are 12 of them, and I'm just going to tick them off a little bit. And you'll notice right away that only one of the criteria for a healthy organization is profitability. So that might actually surprise a lot of people when you think of, what? It's all about the money. Well, it's not. But if you do have a healthy organization, I can tell you right now that they have done multiple studies to show that your profitability actually increases the healthier your organization is. So let me go ahead and tick these off. The first criteria for a healthy organization that can be measured, employee engagement. Second, employee well-being. Third, employee net promoter score. That's an ENPS score. And what that is, is have your employees become advocates for your company? Do they share how great your organization is in the community that they have? Fourth one, employee turnover. And in particular, they look at a particular number called a regrettable turnover. And in that case, you're looking at high value, high performing employees that are jumping ship. More common vernacular, you can call that a brain drain of an organization. Then there's profitability. That's number five. Number six, absenteeism rate, right? If you have a highly toxic organization, guess what? Everyone's going to be sick and calling in because they don't want to go. Next one is job satisfaction. Next one is new hire fail rate. Who completes your training program, starts the job, and within three months, they're gone. The next one is assessing organizational capabilities. In healthy organizations, Your capabilities over time change, your priorities change, and your missions often change. And if no one's watching that, you're not maximizing your organization and keeping people moving forward. Next one is pay equity. That's important. If you don't feel like you're being compensated properly, you may not stay. And then the next one is organizational culture. 
you know, the thing about organizational culture is that it's not about necessarily what kind of culture it is. It's about whether it's clear or not. So that you know for sure whether you fit into it or not and whether you want to follow the rules of that culture. And it helps for recruiting. It helps for people working together. It helps for work. Last one, and this is the one that is probably the best known. It's a McKinsey global benchmarking tool based on a thousand points of research. And it's called an organizational health index. So a lot of companies use that to kind of assess things, but you know you can't really neglect all of the other aspects as well. And I would say this, as I kick it over to you, Nancy, that I'm really excited about our guest today because uh, she's just a hoot and she's an expert and I just love it. But you know, when we're talking about organizational and leadership development, which A Squared Lamp Groups is passionate about and why we exist, the same exact tools that great leaders use to amplify their great leadership and their profitable organizations are the same exact tools that poor leaders use to avoid making great or hard decisions within their organizations. Wow. And and so I I want you to focus on the truth telling that our in, incredible guest is going to be sharing because it's not about the tool. Right. So Nancy, I can hardly wait. Please introduce our guest so we can start talking with her. Well, I'm really excited about this because if you've ever been stressed out at work and you're listening to your leaders and there's decisions being made and mistakes are happening and you've ever thought you could do it better. Well, our guest, Dr. Stacy Morgan, has been there and done that. And she's on a personal mission of mercy to reveal the secrets of the human side of change. She leverages decades of working in the trenches of diverse organizations and cultures. And she combines her extensive experience in developing, teaching, and running graduate and corporate leadership programs. She's here to tell us some great stories. She's worked with some amazing organizations, HBO, Xerox, NASA. I want to know about that. The United States Air Force, the Boy Scouts of America, and the National Association for Search and Rescue. I know those are just the highlights. As we dive into this, Stacy just finished a book called The Elephant Hunter, Speaking Truth in Organizations. Please welcome Stacy Morgan. Hey. Hi. Now I got to live up to the hoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're already ahead of the game. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Let's take it up from there. So every hero or villain in a story has a origin story. So Stacy, can you tell us a little bit about what you've done in your past and what kind of led you to this point to become this elephant hunter? Well, sure. It's amazing because it's it's a windy journey from one point of view where it zigged and zagged and didn't make a lot of sense. But now that I look back at it, it was just all perfectly formed, leading me to exactly where I want to be, where I uncovered what I now see as, as my key strength, my key asset, and that's being able to tag the elephant in the room. And it didn't start that way, but throughout my, my life, really, and then into my career, I'd see things happen that are like, nah, that's just wrong. That can't happen. Why is that happening? Who's letting that happen? Why isn't anybody saying anything? Why don't you think you can say anything? And so 
I learned how to say something and and to speak up and to speak the truth that needed to be told, but not just in any old way, not just blurting it out, but but crafting a message for a particular outcome. And it started as a child when I encountered situations happening to myself or to others that just ought not to be. And I'd go home and I'd talk to my mother about it. And I was blessed because she was a, chi- a child psychologist. <laughs> oh, wow. What great so training. I lucked out. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was teaching me how to handle these situations, but it still came up with the fear of actually doing it. And fast forward, it is that exact skill that I remember learning sitting on the sink in the bathroom, swinging my legs on how to deal with the situation at school that I leverage in organizations and that I write about in my in my book in a very uh, hoot, fun way. Because when we look at it, there's so many great tools out there. And I've been between being a strategy consultant and employee blah, 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 all these things, running master's programs, building doctoral programs. There are great tools out there. And I'm not here to add to that. I'm here to reflect upon and deliver one tiny nugget of insight to unlock, as I sweep my bookcases to my right, all of that knowledge. And it's how to overcome that fear that fear of tagging the elephant in the room. And I imagine starting the conversation in a way that allows other people to join your voice. Because I think that the fear is that when I speak up, I'm the only one, (laughs) right? And they're going to target me because if you speak up, I become the problem. Well, and that's a perfect point because that's why, first of all, to be able to relay this information I had to dig deep and jump out of the box and kick it down the road. And it's funny because you talk about Susan, you know, being the only one or being afraid to be the one to speak up because nobody wants to be the problem child. But from the elephant hunter's point of view, the elephant hunter being the protagonist in my book, which is creative nonfiction, I'll talk more about that later. If you're not tagging the elephant in the room, you're colluding with its handlers. And so Mm. that's the situation that we're in. And the elephant in the room is just net neutral information that wants to interact and be looked at and talked about and will do anything, bump, jostle, trample to inspire you, to force you to speak and call it out. And so that doesn't necessarily speak directly to your question, but it kind of sets the framework from where I'm coming from with this perspective on the unspoken truth that's hidden in plain sight in a room. And so how you go about tagging that and how you overcome your your fear of being that only person, that one, is kind of flipped and looked at from different angles in the book because, sure, what, what would you rather be? the problem child or the hero. And so it's all about revealing your inner hero, how you speak up in organizations, because we get really confused and we think that pleasing and making our bosses happy, doing what the organization asks, you know, loving people is 
giving them what they want when they want it. Uh-uh. If you really care, then, then you'll give them what they need, not necessarily what they want. And people in all different positions and organizations, be they paid or volunteer, have a unique perspective that the leadership, the decision makers, that their coworkers, their colleagues, fellow volunteers need to understand to see the whole picture, to create that organizational health, to be able to get somewhere new in the organization. And so really being kind and caring is doing the hard right thing. And it's that sacrificial love that that will bring you all together and get you to a new place where you're meant to be. Let me ask you a question too, because when, when you were talking, a couple of things came to mind. First of all, in that list, I was thinking organizational culture, just creating a culture. But in order to create a culture, you and I both know uh, I'm I do organizational development. So creating a culture, you don't start at the top level down. Usually you start with a small group made up of various people from all levels and you start there and develop outward, right? That's how you change a culture. But one thing that kind of struck my curiosity was that as you were talking about truth telling in an organization and learning how to do it, how much does a person's personality play into that? I have a very bold personality. I had no problem speaking up from the time I was a teenager (laughs) all the way up through any organization. Not everybody is that direct. Yeah, and I I can relate to that too because when I grew up, I was told one of these messages in my, you know, origin was you are to speak when spoken to, (laughs) And I didn't have, I was told basically that I didn't have much to add to the situation. So I think some people have those little barriers, those messages in their head of like, you know, don't rock the boat and, you know, don't cause trouble. And and I think that's a big barrier for some. So we kind of have the, you know, the, the strong personality like Susan and the other side. And then there's the mix, right? Like maybe someone's waiting for their opportunity when to move into the conversation. So I think that's a really good point that I'd like to learn more about. Well, you know, those are excellent points. I've got two things to say that might sound like they contradict each other, but they don't. But the myth buster is you, you don't have to have that bold personality, that that ability to take that kind of risk is learned. And because I am, by all tests, I am a firewall introvert. My energy, my comfort zone is not out in the big bold. Yet, Susan will think, nah, I've seen her. That's not true. But it's where you get your energy. And so I've learned to come out and be this way. And as I said, you know, part of my origin story is I I learned as a child because my mother, who was also like me, saw the importance of it and was going to make sure I was prepared. So that's that's one point of it. But you can't deny someone who's meek and timid. And one of the biggest barriers to being able to do this is, is the belief that it's not my place to. It's not my place as an employee to speak up, challenge the status quo, share my point of view. From the leader's point of view, it's not my place to ask them for information 
I'm the boss. I'm up here. I should know these things, but I don't. And so, you know, these two two similar beliefs from these diametrically opposed positions create the situation that we're in now. And because many, I will say, Susan, many, many cultures are very clear in what they are, and that is toxic. But still, the ability to uh, say, no, I don't fit in in a toxic organization, or I, I, I opt out, is hard. And with people who are just, who are raised to believe that is not their place. And then because of that, they don't know how. And even if they want to, and we all have an inner hero inside, but even though they don't know how to find it and then reveal it, that can be overcome. And that's that's why I wrote this book and started this whole organizational adventure series, because I saw it. I saw it every day. And you speak up once in a meeting and people like, okay, she cares. Then everybody would come to me and spill their guts about all the other elephants in the room. And then when I'd ask, so what happened when you said something? Oh, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I didn't say anything. And I'm like, huh, okay, why not? And and so that's that is that that nexus, that that little little space between all these great texts, all these tools, all this knowledge. And the drive to create more and more and more leadership management, supervisor team, books, 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 books. There's so many. Yet I was looking at ones back when I got my doctorate in the in the early 90s. And it's like, we're still not doing this. This is still excellent and so relevant. How come? So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're almost talking about the skill of truth-telling needing to be developed. It's like a forgotten skill. Yes, and it's and it's even more than that. There's some great books out, but it, it part of speaking truth is being able to tag the elephant in the room that there is a truth that's not spoken. Hmm. And so I've been in organizations that have had every single solitary employee read crucial conversations mm-hmm. and do workshops and send everybody through all of this training and they still can't do it because those select people in those higher up positions who are part of the elephant in the room have not been tagged and so they don't realize their culpability in the situation and so it's so it's not just about it's not what i'm hearing is that it's not just about the speaking up part of it. It's also about being open to hear what is going on. Because, you know, if somebody's tagging an elephant or an issue, or if you're able to do that, that's great. But when you do, other people have to be able to hear and understand that that's actually happening. Absolutely. And that gets me onto how I have taken a creative license and a gritty street view of the situation in my book to flip the narrative and spin the dimensions of leadership, leading the self, leading others, um, leading organizations, and leading in service. And from my protagonist's points of view, it's about dealing with my crap, your crap, our crap and everyone's crap. And 
it's really what we wade through that we have to deal with every day. And that gets to the experience of receiving and giving feedback and and how we how we approach it how we speak that truth and understanding and this is where we draw upon the discipline of emotional intelligence and it's understanding that what can you control my crap <laughs> what do i need to know to have a conversation with you your crap what do we need to do when we get groups of us together in an organization we need to understand our crap And when we're out in the community, out in the greater world, local and global, how does our organizational crap leach out and shape our community or infect it? And so I'll just pin that for a second to say the reason I'm writing this organizational adventure series using deep metaphor is to create a visceral experience about what it feels like, no matter what your position is in an organization what it feels like to be at work every day. And the reason I'm using deep metaphor is because there are all these other books that talk about it straight up and you're like, make so much sense, not me. This makes sense, not me. That makes sense, so you. And if it's uh, narrated, so to speak, by a neutral observer, the elephant hunter, And you're drawn into this world that feels familiar and sounds and smells and tastes almost familiar. You get drawn into the adventure and then you can see, ah, crap, I do that. That's me. I didn't know that that was that effect. I could, you, you see things from a completely different view and it takes you. It disconnects you from your own emotional baggage. You get drawn into a story, and then you have some discovery moments. And so that's why everything I use, the case situations that I describe from field, field notes on organizational safari, and the tools, the paraphernalia that the elephant hunter uses, are all drenched in metaphor um, to give us a different viewpoint because. Hearing stuff and saying stuff, as they say in Massachusetts, it's wicked hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. You're reminding me of my past. So I spent 12 years in the Army. I know you worked with the Air Force. So I want want to hear a little bit about that experience because I was an officer and I was also enlisted. And leadership, so much of decisions are top-driven. Everything's from the top down. And so much responsibility is given to the younger personnel at the lower levels. Like a lieutenant has a ton of responsibility. And, you know, now they're working with three people in their platoon and and there's all these different people and you have no idea what their backgrounds are like. And the main thing, everything is mission focused, right? So what I want to know is, you know, what was your experience like when you were working with the Air Force? And most importantly, like, what were some of those stumbling blocks that they were encountering that you were able to help them with? Well, thank you for your service. (laughs) Thanks. And, And you're in a great position having been on both sides of the coin, being an officer and enlisted, because a lot of the stumbling blocks, culturally speaking, are betwixt the two. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, because officers, at least in the Air Force, they rotate quickly through to get all this leadership experience. So maybe a year, year, you know, the higher your rank, the faster you move. So, you know, three years, two years, one year in a, in a, in a place. So who's responsible for continuity? The enlisted folks. Who's got to essentially teach the officer the job? The enlisted folks. So looking from their point of view at that swirl of a new person coming in with an agenda, because obviously there's a promotion board coming. And um, so they've got to always be working their file and trying to do good things. And don't get me wrong, everybody's trying to, to work the mission, but simultaneously their own agenda and the whole, the whole aspect of, like, let's take the officers. There's two groups that are really absorbing all of the shock of their impact um, in moving forward. And that's the enlisted folks and their families. And there's unwritten rules of, you know, everybody, if they could, would be issued a family because they absorb a lot of the emotion and they create a stability. And there's operational and psychological reasons for both, and has always been. And so, but those become elephants in the room when they're not owned. And so that's, that's a big issue. Um, another thing is in a change of command, not only looking at the officer versus enlisted point of view, but it's whiplash for everybody around. And also for the individual who's got a lot of responsibility for leading the people without the real connection or the time to get the connection. Hmm. Yeah. And I, there are so many, I'm reminding me of so many things, uh, you know, in leadership, growing, watching leaders, and then, you know, trying to figure out what to do, what not to do, what, what, and I, I, I know that people, as they're watching their leaders, whether it's in a, you know, military situation or in the corporate side, which I want to kind of shift to, it's difficult to rise. And when you've been working with corporations and talking, you know, through with them about their culture, and I think Susan brought this up a little bit earlier about culture, how have you been able to help people find those cultural elephants that were holding the organization back? With strategic timing, and because many times I was called in to do one thing over here, and then these elephants kept knocking me over, and once you see one, you can't unsee it. And then if you're a truth teller, you have to find a way to communicate that information. Other times, I was asked to come in and address an elephant in the room, but then you trace back and the handler holding the chain is like the guy who hired you. (laughs) And so, so learning how to do that. And that's, you know, what I I talk about a lot in, in the book and will in future books, because it's, it's, there's, there's a tool, there's a skill set, but basically breaking down what's emotional and what's informational. 
Is there information that they need to understand to look at this different, in a different way? And is there an emotion at play that needs to be spoken of, addressed? And emotions can drive information, information can drive emotions. So mapping all that out is on what the elephant hunter's tagging tree is how we start looking at the symptoms and how you get to the root cause and then the fears that drive it. And so doing that in a situation, and it's it's delicate. It takes a lot of compassion and 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 neutrality because everybody does what they do, especially, well, I shouldn't even say especially, everybody does what they do for reasons that are tied to what they believe and what they know. And so understanding that starts the compassion engine and then looking at how to how to speak to those concerns. Because I, I, I remember telling my graduate students, I remember one in particular was an MBA student. I said, what, what you really, what I invite you to do <laughs> is this boss who you're having a major problem with, go ask him what keeps him up at night. What are you so worried about, concerned about that keeps you up at night? And then figure out how with what you do for that person, you can try to alleviate some of that. And he laughed. He said, no, you're nuts. In fact, I told my wife, she's like, no, you're nuts. Well, a month later, he's like, Dr. Morgan. (laughs) OMG, it worked. (laughs) Because they're just human beings struggling. And so when you look at that, like that could be you know, someone you know, or or a parent. I mean, my father was an executive and I got to see how all of his cronies, may they all rest in peace. They didn't know what they were doing. They're just doing their level best, doing what they thought was right. Don't want to be exposed, but would love if information was presented in a way that they could learn and do better and grow without losing face, they'd take it. I would. And so it's, it's that delicate dance of of really trying to meet that person where they are as a caring, compassionate human being. You know, we're in this together. And that sounds great. Oh, yeah. But when you're in the heat of it on the fly, it's like, oh, I do not want to do that. <laughs> Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. A-Squared Lamp Groups powers this podcast, Their memberships are tax-deductible donations that directly support their work developing people and organizations. But just for you, they're offering podcast listeners a special 40% off coupon code to join. Your benefits as a member include additional resources, perks, and access that you can use all year, including an additional 30 minutes of bonus podcast content for every episode. Simply use the code 4LISTENERS at checkout. That's the number 4 all caps, listeners, at checkout. They also are giving our listeners free gifts to use now. Go to their website, asquaredlamps.org forward slash podcast, and download your free My Success Course of Action worksheet. There is no cost, registration, or sales pitch involved. Just click it and save. Use it to work on something significant to you this month, maybe even something that sparks interest from today's podcast. 
Then click to join our free but private Stop Digging podcast LinkedIn group, where the conversation continues between you, the hosts, and our guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And now back to the program. Yeah, you're speaking directly to my heart here because uh, you know I have a I have a real passion for leadership, and you know it is very lonely to be a leader. True. And so, so you know, when we're talking about toxic organizations, a lot of times we're only talking about the employee experience, you know, mm-hmm. the non-leaders and how it's the leader's fault. <laughs> right. Right. And, 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 you know, you get all of these uh, articles about, are you a leader or a manager? You know, like they're somehow diametrically opposed, <laughs> which they're not. And, and I, but I think that like the leaders I work with, the reason that they're leaders is, is not because they're mean, horrible people. Some of them are, <laughs> but not all of them. You know, they're passionate about things and they're willing to put in the work and the effort to, to accomplish things. And they like to bring other people. A lot of times they are, leaders are so broken, nobody realizes because they're criticized constantly. Everyone thinks that they can do their job. Every From the lowest custodian of a workshop floor all the way up to like their clients and customers. Everybody knows that they can do a better job than you. And, you know, a lot of the quote feedback that they get just comes in the form of criticism. And a lot of times what happens is that like anyone who's battered and bruised, you just develop a scab and it's really hard to hear because it hurts. If it is true, it hurts even deeper, but when you're criticized constantly, sometimes you just have to walk alone. So when I'm coaching or working with leaders, when you were talking earlier about, you know, not losing face, it's, it's not born out of arrogance. A lot of times it's, uh, it's born out of vulnerability that they, they have to protect themselves. And, and so I think teaching, not just, not just the leaders, how to hear better, but also the employees who are sharing information upward in an organization, how to communicate it in a way that is not dehumanizing because I, you know, leaders are just, I I have such a passion for developing leaders because, because of that, because they're so lonely and there's layers of protection or, you know, that they've developed over the years. So anyway, can you speak to any of that? Yeah. And can you give us an example without naming names? (laughs) Obviously, yeah, that that's very hard. Um, I will, I will, I will see what what I can do. Um, But but you know that's a good point, Nancy. I mean, um, well, both of you, Nancy and Susan. I have a passion for leaders as well as employees, and they misunderstand each other greatly because being the leader. I mean, and once you've climbed to the top and you've looked out there, you're like, oh great. This is not what I thought. (laughs) And you get up there and you look at everybody around in this rarefied air. And it's, well, I think my first real, real hard look at it, uh, the word gobsmacked comes to my mind because they're struggling. They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And guess what? Even a president is an employee and reports to, and is at the mercy of a board of directors, a board of trustees. There's always a layer above. 
And when the layer above you is a committee, a group, a board, holy cow. I mean, talk about different agendas and being, you know, jerked around and responsible for results. It's it's crazy. Being a leader is the most unglamorous job, even though there's, you know, glossy photos, you know who they are, everybody knows, but they're... Yeah, it's 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 a crazy different kind of world and they long for the days to be the employee and then you get these feelings like why don't you appreciate you have all you need trust me and they're like no I want I you know and so finding that balance of what everybody needs is really tough and employees are lonely too and I think everyone in an organization can feel lonely because they see things differently and you know, the leaders set the culture by what they measure, what they evaluate, and what they demonstrate through their own behavior. And um, and they're just trying to survive. They're just going from one thing to another. So it's really, it's really tough when you trickle that down from an employee's point of view. And that's why it takes that diversified group you were talking about, Susan, to to try and, and shift culture. But it's I'm trying to think of <laughs> of something I can share. So what is what is what is the crux of the example that you'd like? <laughs> oh, um, I guess maybe if you could kind of share uh, an example of like where there was a critical communication block between maybe the leaders and the lower level um, personnel, and what was the thing that helped? Uh, break the dam so that the communication could flow again? Um, it was an elephant hunter. And I mean, I say that it is not necessarily me. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I just called it. But um, it was uh, a number of people who individually at different nexus points spoke up and you know tag the elephant in the room but when it's something like that you got to take that leader aside and you've got to have the heart to heart and you've got to let them know compassionately this is the situation and it might take it might take several times and it might take some data some information as well as some emotional understanding and then once they own it and that can take time then they have to do the public tagging of the elephant in the room. They have to step out in the meeting, in the crowd, whatever, amongst those people and say, you know, mea culpa. I realize this is going on and you've been trying to tell me this, but I I didn't understand it from this point of view because this other point of view that I have is, is very different and you don't know. And I didn't think you needed to know, but maybe you do. Maybe you need to understand that this is coming to me and I say, you guys do all this because I've been told do all this. And then all that's going on up there and it's cascaded down to me differently than it is over there. And so, yes, this is all mixed up and it's chaotic and it's actually not in my control, but here's how together we can try and manage this situation. And then it's not like the big change relief, but it's the truth 
the honesty that, okay, this is what we're dealing with because we felt it and you weren't saying it. And that's betrayal, you know, to us. I mean, that wasn't exactly what was said, but, um, you know, as, as Susan was saying earlier, knowing what the culture is. So yes, this is kind of a messed up culture, but knowing that this is kind of how it's operating lets us kind of bend our knees, put our heads together and work on it. So we don't feel as abused because we thought that you were just jerking us around. But now that you're being jerked around, um, poor guy, let's help. <laughs> well, I, like, I like how you uh, reframed it is like where we manage the situation. Cause I, I think what happens in toxic organizations is you don't manage the situation. You try to manage other people. So there's a real manipulation going on in, in all, you know, from all directions when, when you're in a toxic organization, which is where you get to the politicking and the, you know, personality and the alliance forming and, you know, subversive power structures that don't align with the hierarchy power <laughs> authority. Right. Um, I, you know, one thing that started another curiosity trail for me when you were talking was what about global organizations where you're working with multiple cultures, not just the, the organization. And I think of, for example, diametrically opposed uh, cultural identities, the Japanese versus, I don't know, the Portuguese or, you know, whatever, whatever the diametrically opposed ones are. But Well, and that's, that's interesting because what I also think of with that is mergers and acquisitions. Um, it's the acquisition of this small company that was so powerful in the marketplace that the big company, instead of competing, bought them. And do they bleed them out, which also happens, and then focus just on what they're doing? Do they incorporate them, and but make them shift to their big organization values? And it was those little scrappy values, how they did things that created the environment to create that big value for the tiny company. It's a similar kind of thing and and gets to one of my pet peeves, passion points. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's it's values accountability in an organization and values congruity in the behavior of the leadership. So organizational values, in theory exist to set the playing field in an organization. Everybody who signs on ascribes to those values. And if the organization wants to make sure you know that they value what they value, then they'll assess them. They'll measure them in some way so they know everybody's accountable to living those values. There that unicorn went, oh my gosh, did you see it go by? <laughs> it's kind of rare, but it's it, it, they do exist. They do exist, and I'm happy to say that there's more and more of them. But there are still, shall we say in the elephant hunter's vernacular, a crap pile of those who don't. And so even when you're dealing with mergers and acquisitions or you're dealing with um, multicultural organizations, if there's a set of organizational values that are clear and everybody who works for them ascribes to those values, it gives enough freedom for local and local cultural diversity that may enhance however they live their day and run their overall operations, but still tie them specifically to the deliverables, the process, 
and the continuity of the organization itself. Can I just interrupt you for just a minute? Because, you know, when you were talking, uh, let talk, be more specific or help, help us define or put some boundaries around when you say values. Because I, I see a lot of, excuse my vernacular, but crappy mission statements with that are all full of value. And we believe in the equity of all human race and the profitability of our industry. Well, and it means nothing. Right, so they're espousing values, but they're not actually values. So, what what would what would a real value statement that would cross, you know, cultural global boundaries be that might unify people? Well, and, and it's funny you mentioned this because being a, a strategy consultant for decades, my pet peeves have been and always will be the definition of strategy. Vision, mission, goals, objectives, and tactics. I Everywhere I go, I have everybody fill these out on their chairs, and I get all the definitions all over the place. But to precisely answer your question, in terms of what, what those values are, there, there isn't, I'll just pull out a random example to kind of tell you what I mean by this. So a common value is we value our employees. Okay. What does that look like, feel like, taste like, smell like when you're in the organization? Because you have that on your website as a value. And then people are sitting over in this little area of the organization, feeling like they're not getting the resources or the information they need or the vacation time or whatever it is. And they're like, looking at that, disconnect. I don't feel valued. So first of all, whatever they have to be, they have to be specific enough to be able to carry meaning and and have applicability in organizational life. So we value our employees and want to make sure that they have the resources they need, not want, to get the job done or to whatever it is. I mean, you craft it from there, but it, it can't just be a throwaway statement because then that becomes insulting. And then people now, I mean, you look at, it's like vision statements. Um, You know, it's a long-term vision of value in the marketplace, not we want to be number one in the organization. We are in the, in our field, in the industry, whatever that is. That's not a usable vision statement. And these things are tools. Values are tools. Missions are tools. And so the issue with, with something that's international and tying it together, it's, it's got to be crafted specifically to work. Otherwise, you know, the values are supposed to be hard pan where everything else reaches the bottom and can push off people when they don't know what to do. I'm in this situation. I've got to make this decision. You know, you run through and if your mission, vision, goals, don't do anything, you look bottom line the values. That's where everything rests. And so they have to be crafted to serve that function. And believable. And, you know, and it's funny because believability can be sensed by people, even when you're not in it. They they did a, a funny study, but not funny in, in some ways, but they found that in companies where they had a diversity statement in their website, and even if they had two or more people on the board or in the leadership that were highlighted as part of that diversity, fewer people applied. (laughs) 
diverse people applied. So uh, they did the study on African-American and Hispanic applicants, both male and female, and fewer applied. And they don't know why in the study. They didn't, they didn't develop that study uh, beyond that. But they suspected and thought further study ought to be done on why that is, whether it's the believability or in the sense where it was just kind of for show versus the actual practice. And so, so I, you know, that's a curious thing because you can say that you believe, you know, customer first, but, but then, you know, try to get a refund, Right, right, right. And that's the thing is everybody now is the scramble for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it doesn't mean anything. You see that everywhere because they're still figuring it out. And it's become, you just because it's on a website or they say that they know they should, it doesn't be, mean they know how to do it. And, and they may be trying to, you know. And they very well may be. Yeah, there's, there's a knowledge gap. I, I work with an and met with a number of people through some associations who who specifically run programs and train companies to do that. Uh, one of them in England and a few here in the United States. And there is a huge gap in the knowledge. So again, it's it's companies embracing the tool without understanding the context. <laughs> right, because the context is, from my point of view, my experience, 40 years, is that um, they don't know how to incorporate diversity and inclusion in job positions, employee levels, to get the information and the perspective they need of their customer, of their operations. And so to say that then they're going to bring in this whole other level and we're going to focus on that, it's like, you better have a very deep and wide and long program of of training because <laughs> it's an added layer of confusion to what's already confused perhaps but but you know your your elephant hunter strategy and skill building though can can actually serve as a catalyst for even a diversity program because if you're if, if all of your people and part of your culture and your values is to speak the truth and tag the elephant in the room, then it becomes less about that, about your ethnicity, your race, your disability, your, you know, fill in the blank, um, gender, you know, any of those things. It becomes more about we manage this situation. Right. We don't manage each other. Well, right. And because, you know, my perspective has always been that processes are managed and people are led and that it's only by building. I like to think of uh, building a hollow. When you think of a holographic image, you look at whatever angle you're looking at and that's what you see. But all that other information is still there forming that image. And you need all those different angles to see the whole then you choose, you know, where you're going to approach it. And we just need to feel that it's our place to provide that information. And it's our place to receive that information. I think that's a great segue. We've been talking here for almost an hour about meeting challenges in organizations. And I, I think some of the takeaways that I've gotten from this is, you know, as we try to speak the truth and identify these elephants. For me, what I've got from you, Stacey, is a lot of it is in the art of crafting a message. And 
sharing what we're going through. If we're a leader or a lower level employee, doesn't matter what level you're at, sharing your experience and telling others so that leadership will understand what you're going. But understanding what the big picture is, I think, in the organization, that's kind of that takeaway that I, I got. Susan, what, what were your insights? Well, I could talk with Dr. Morgan here for like another hour. I'm, I'm just, I keep going down these uh, curiosity trails and it's something we're both passionate about. You know, identifying the truth and knowing its context is so important in any kind of growth. You cannot grow unless you know the truth and what context it's coming from. So it's not just about the facts and figures, the profitability. It's not just about the tools that you use. It's not just about the quality of your leaders per se, you know, their expertise or areas. It's not just about, you know, hiring employees that stick around. It's really about what happens when you get there, when people show up. And I, I see this as a catalyzing skill that can be utilized in conjunction with other tools, but a way of helping people to come to an understanding of what, what that truth is and how to handle it. Because I think even if you get somebody bold like me, who's out there in the organization saying, you can't do that, <laughs> right? That may be the truth. I may be telling them how to do the right thing. They may or may not hear, hear it. The, the issue is the context and the ownership and, and the timing of it. You know, what do we do with that? Right. Because just speaking it, it doesn't necessarily create the action. But what it does do is if, if you have the right catalyst, it creates the understanding so that you can see multiple solutions. And I think that helps organizations become agile and healthy is when you can clearly see multiple solutions to whatever issue it is. And you can actively choose together what the best path is. So I, I see your what you've developed out of your experience and your knowledge and, you know, the things that you've learned and shared and studied and researched as being very generous of you to share with other people <laughs> and, and helpful. So, so thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I think, you know, it is, it is something I just feel totally compelled to do. I cannot leave this planet without doing this seven book series and a seven book spinoff series. So I'm going to be busy, <laughs> but, but, but to start off with this, you know, I just, I did want to say, you know, Nancy, it is about crafting the message. It's about taking the time and seeing the value. Um, it's, I, I will, there's a great tool. I tell all my graduate students about, um, you know, mind tools, mindtools.com have all kinds of things, but there's a communication planner that's like, this is your message. This is your audience. This is the objective of the message. This is the objective for each audience. And really how do you give each person what they need to be successful? And it helps you think it through whether you're talking up to leadership or down to employees it's so valuable and it's been around for ebbs, man, but it's still, we stink at this. I think part of it is because we get sucked into the mentality that that's not a good use of our time. You know, I was had a fishbowl of an office in several locations and it's like, if I'm just sitting there, people think like, I'm not doing anything. 
But man, my brain is like going. I may look like I'm curled up in the fetal position on a couch, but I'm working. I'm working hard. And it's it's that it's that that taking the time to think of others, to think of what they need helps you think of the organization and and we just need more time. I mean, I went all the way back, well, it hasn't been that long, but when I did my <laughs> Uh, my doctoral dissertation, I, I developed an instrument called the strategic knowledge indicator. I was just so, so obsessed with figuring out how to validate the ability to think, period, no, to think as a leader and and to, to really look at first, second, third, fourth order of effects, to gather up, you know, to do all this environmental scanning, to look at diverse perspectives and learn how to be uncomfortable being uncomfortable. And and I'm still doing that. I'm still learning that. And I'm still on my balance board preaching it. We're glad you are. <laughs> I, I can't believe this conversation is an hour and I feel like we only scratched the surface here, but kind of leave us with a great exit point here. You were talking about planning for success. And Susan, can you tell us a little bit about our uh, My Success Course of Action worksheet? I can. Two things. First of all, she has a book coming out, so go to Amazon or any other book dealer and order it or pre-order it. It's called The Elephant Hunter. That's going to go much deeper than what we could do in our own podcast. But then secondly, don't just be a listener. Make it personal to you. So if something inspired you out of this show... If something inspires you just in your own workplace that you just want to develop something at home, personally, or professionally, we have a free worksheet at asquaredlamps.org. If you forward slash podcast, then we don't have any registration. We don't spam you. We don't collect your email. Just download it and use it. It just walks you through an experiment process where you can pick one thing that you want to try this month and just practice it in different contexts, in different areas and see what the results are. And if something works, great, you can build on that. And if something doesn't work, at least you know. It builds confidence and it helps you become part of the process so that you're not just a listener, you're also a doer, you're a changer, and you can tap into that inner hero that Dr. Morgan talked about. So thanks, Nancy. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much, Stacy, And uh, make sure you go out and get that book, The Elephant Hunter, Speaking Truth in Organizations. Thank you for joining us on the Stop Digging Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Stop Digging Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend, and connect with us on our social media channels. This podcast is powered by asquaredlamps.org.